Hello and welcome to another edition of Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters and so glad you could join me this week because we've got another really fun episode and it is with a writer that I think is one of the best in the business right now. He's one of the absolute rising stars of hockey media and he is one of my close personal friends. He is Ryan S. Clark of The Athletic. You know him from his coverage of the Colorado Avalanche in the previous two seasons, but he is off to Seattle and now is covering the Seattle Kraken and also is now a national hockey writer covering all kinds of stories of great import across the league. And uh, it's been a long road to get there, so we're going to talk a lot about the NHL trade deadline for sure. That's going to have implications on everything from the NHL draft to the expansion draft, which we'll talk about with Ryan. He had a great piece on The Athletic, uh, so make sure you check that out if you haven't already, about what the trade deadline meant to the Kraken. And really what the trade deadline means to the Kraken is essentially what it means to the rest of the NHL because every team was making deals with that expansion draft in the back of their mind. Many of the GMs said it. It was part of what made the trade deadline even a little bit more difficult this year. But some really great insight from Ryan from that perspective. And I also wanted to get into his career because this is a guy that I've known for more than a decade. He covered the USHL for the Fargo Forum way back and he had this blog called slightly chilled and I thought that he brought such professionalism to covering the USHL at a time where it wasn't a a widely covered and and maybe not even a widely known league but you know you think of some of the guys that were were playing in the league at that time and it was you know guys like Jaden Schwartz and John Gibson and um, you know all kinds of players that that went on to have really successful NHL careers and Ryan was kind of at the ground level covering all of it and uh, I, I just have such respect for him, you know, both as a friend, but also as somebody that has worked his way up from the beginning. He told me way back when he wanted to be an NHL beat writer, and he has exceeded those expectations. It took a long time to get there. He hit a lot of rungs on the ladder uh, on the way to the top, but he is very much one of the rising stars in this business, and I hope that you'll get a lot out of his story and also his insight in what we're going to have here for the NHL expansion draft the newest team, the Kraken, and obviously we'll talk about the NHL trade deadline. Before we get to my interview with Ryan, I do want to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Make sure you like, rate, review, thumbs up, whatever you do, share it, just get it out there. We are growing every week, and I, and I cannot thank you enough for that. It is so important uh, to me to just be able to, to connect with you on a weekly basis, and I am so appreciative of the feedback that I've gotten so far. So please make sure you leave you know, five-star ratings, nice reviews, help. You know, It just helps us get the word out about the podcast. And again, please share it if you do see it on social media. And aside from that, also, as you know, The engine that drives the whole media operation is Hockey Sense with Chris Peters, which is on Substack. You can subscribe $6 a month. Uh, You can subscribe for a $54 annual subscription. There's also the supporting subscriber option, which allows you to, you know, if you choose to to give a little bit more to kind of help me get this off the ground. And and, and I hope to have, you know, many of those perks. We're going to start rolling those out really soon, which will include, you know, happy hours, user mock drafts, all these different things that we're going to do. And if you have not yet subscribed, this is the week to do it. After much delay and much work put into it, 
I wanted to make sure I had the best possible product I could for you on my spring draft rankings. And again, these are not the final rankings, but these are the rankings that we're, we're having at this stage of the season where we've seen enough of those players. So it gives you a little bit of an idea just outside of the trade deadline of what's out there, especially if your team maybe picked up a couple of first round draft picks in this draft. Maybe you can get a better idea of what's out there. So please do subscribe. You will get the spring draft rankings, which will be out very, very soon. So I, I do hope that you will subscribe to that. Also, before we get to the interview, want to send out a big congratulations to the University of Massachusetts, UMass. I was in Pittsburgh to cover their national championship run, an incredible three games. Really, the first two, the, the semifinals between Minnesota State and St. Cloud State were absolute thrillers. Uh, you also had UMass versus Minnesota Duluth. That goes to overtime, an incredible game all the way around. And UMass gets the job done, gets a little revenge on UMD, which beat them for the national championship two years ago, and win their first ever men's hockey national title. A great moment for that program. Hats off to Greg Carvel and all the players because that was a clinical win in the championship game. And, and UMass is a program that has put itself on the map in a very unique way. Now, I, I have a full recap of both the Frozen Four semifinals and also the championship game where we get into some of the analysis about what UMass has done. But I just want to share a little snippet here because I think it is important. You know, college hockey, it is very difficult to recruit in because you're trying to build the best team, but you also are trying to, you know, sell your program in the process. And I think that's why a lot of teams are always chasing those high-end prospects, those guys that are going in the first round. It helps to have those guys to advertise your program. Certainly it's helped for Boston University to have guys like Brady Kachuk and Jack Eichel as alumni who have gone there, played one year, and moved on. UMass also had the great luck of, of landing Kale McCarr, you know, getting to him before anybody else. And that was actually the previous coaching staff that recruited him. McCarr kept his commitment, stayed there, went, you know, won the Hobie Baker, stayed for two seasons, did really well, really developed under Carvel, who, who has a track record of developing defensemen. And it all worked out so well for Kale McCarr. But they lose Kale McCarr, and his senior class is essentially the one that ends up winning the national title for UMass, and they had so many other guys that came in, and Zach Jones and Matt Kessel were sophomores on that team as blue liners. Mark Del Geizo was uh, a, a junior this year and, and such an important piece of that team. Bobby Trevino, also a junior, was the most outstanding player of the tournament. And then Philip Lindbergh, also a junior, Minnesota Wild draft pick, one of the most insane stat lines you'll ever see in terms of national tournament. Uh, he had uh, an incredible 956 save or 959 save percentage. In seven NCAA tournament games over his career, four shutouts, which is a record in the NCAA. I mean, it's ridiculous. And they built this team with players that weren't necessarily the highest recruits, weren't necessarily blue chip guys coming in. But all of a sudden, they, they come through. Character over talent has been one of the key things that they've said. You know, and so to lose Kale McCarr and Mario Ferraro and John Leonard and a number of other players over the course of this time, they still had enough to win a national championship two years later. And, and UMass is really doing something special. So if you haven't seen that game, try to catch it on one of the ESPN platforms um, to just see you know, an incredible, an incredible team performance from UMass. We'll get into a little bit more on the college hockey side after my interview with Ryan. Uh, but I think I've talked enough at the beginning of this part. So if you made it this far, awesome. I'm sure you want to hear Ryan. I want to hear Ryan too. So we're going to take our pause here and send it over to my interview with Ryan S. Clark of The Athletic. 
very pleased to be joined by one of my very best friends, not just in the business, but in the whole wide world. And he was gracious enough to join me on this on this podcast. He is one of the rising stars of hockey media as well. He covers the Seattle Kraken for The Athletic. He's also a national writer covering the NHL for The Athletic and previously covered the Colorado Avalanche also for The Athletic. He is Ryan S. Clark. And Ryan, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Talking Hockey Sense. Thank you for having me. That was a very sweet introduction. It, it was sweet. It was sweet. I agree. All right. So, Ryan, we're going to so talk about you are. <laughs> Ryan, we're going to talk about the trade deadline today because this was really your first taste of looking at the deadline from a more national perspective as uh, in your role at The Athletic. And I just wonder what that process was like. Obviously, you know, at that point, every trade matters. And I think every trade mattered anyway in your role as the Kraken beat writer as well, um, just because I think a lot of general managers said that they were thinking about the expansion, expansion draft when they were making deals. It was in the back of their mind. So, I, you know, based on how everything went, I mean, what was it like to just kind of go through Monday and, and watch the trades roll in and, and, and how did you handle that? Really, I mean, it was kind of just starting with how that process started, let's say even Friday, because at first when you start seeing some of these deals, you know that they're going to be rentals, the majority of them are, but you're curious about what will the rental price look like. And so in some ways, when you see a lot of first round picks going, you're like, okay, this is interesting because what will the market command for certain players? And of course, if you look at what's going on in the sport right now, just with different conversations, one of the biggest talking points has simply been, you look at the bounty the Sabres received for Taylor Hall versus what the Blue Jackets got for even David Savard or Nick Foligno. And it raises some really interesting questions about, okay, how does, it, how does the team get to that kind of price on someone like Taylor Hall? And you look at the numbers, whether it's his shooting percentage, his lack of production, all these other things. And that's what made it such an interesting process, Chris, was it was looking at, okay, what was the price? What was the going rate for some of these players? Then, of course, there is the initial analysis of, okay, how do you fit in? But really, and it goes back to something Pierre Lebrun wrote about this morning, where it's like it's trading draft capital essentially for cap space. And it's an interesting conversation because, I mean, one, we've seen general managers get really creative this year, whether it be with how they use LTIR, the usage of the taxi squad. Um, they have found ways to, to get smart, but then there have been moments like we saw with Vegas where they, they didn't field a full lineup in a game because of how strict the cap has right. been this year. But the other part about trading that draft capital is this. You're doing it in a year where it's more of a crapshoot than it's ever been before. Because when you have scouts that aren't able to watch players in person, when you look at the fact that some leagues like the QMJHL have been a stop start, the fact that WHL had a late start and the OHL has not even started at all, on top of the fact that you look at what's going on in Europe where some leagues have been able to play consistently and some have had to stop as well, it makes kind of evaluating prospects so complicated so if you're a team trying to contend, if you're going to push all your chips and those chips in this case are your draft picks, maybe this was the year to do it. Yeah, I think you're right on that because basically as I look at it, I mean, most of the teams have had, you know, they have their area scouts and they're doing the best they can, but we're still grading this entire draft class 
on a bit of a curve. And, and so there are a lot of unknowns about this year, which really I did think impact the value of 2021 draft picks. And so, you know, the, the, and the Taylor Hall trade was obviously fascinating. I think you look at some of the trades, as you mentioned, that, that, that cleared cap space and made room. I mean, this flat cap world is really changing everything. So it, it, there were so many different factors at play over the course of this entire, um, this entire process that, yeah, I mean, I think that it was, it was hard to really place appropriate value necessarily on the draft picks as they were. We could, I, I don't think you can gr- judge the trades in terms of draft value the same way, how, even though there are scouts out there, they're, they're getting out there, but you know, if you're, if you're an Ontario based scout, you're not going anywhere, you know, you, there's nowhere to go and there's, you can't get back, you know, so it's, it's, you're kind of immobilized. So yeah, it's really difficult for, for that process. But the other thing, you know, as you're going through this and, you know, you wrote a great piece today on the athletic about, how the, the, the trades that impacted the Kraken's plans and, and, and what's available to them. And, and I think that, as you noted, the most valuable thing is some roster certainty at this point in terms of, you know, they don't know who they're going to protect, but they at least know who the options are. Um, so I just wonder if there was a trade either yesterday or throughout the process that you, you covered the draft that really raised your eyebrows and said that could be important for the Kraken. There, there's two. Let, let's start with the one that Washington made for Jonas Siegenthaler, where they sent him to the New Jersey Devils. It might seem something really minor, but when you look at what the Devils' situation is, the Devils are likely going to go with a 7-3-1 protection route. So you're going to protect Siegenthaler because he's an RFA, you have team control. And the thought with him was he just needs playing time elsewhere because, let's face it, the Capitals are a team where if you're young and you're homegrown, if you can't play an immediate role right away or there's someone you can't overtake, chances are you're going to move on. Like how many right. times did, did we see that with people like Philip Grubauer, Andre Burakovsky, um, so on. And, and yeah, Jakob Vrana yesterday too. So yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so Jonas Siegenthaler is another example of that. And so you move him to New Jersey where the thought is they're going to protect him and Damon Severson. Now it creates this really interesting hypothetical about who do you keep between P.K. Subban and Will Butcher? And so mm. P.K. Subban has been the more productive player. He has received more ice time than any New Jersey Devil player in even strength situations. Um, excuse me, in five-on-five play. You look at the fact that there was a stretch of about a week or two ago where offensively speaking, it was some of the more, most consistent hockey he had been playing. And on top of that, he's just been logging heavy minutes. With Will Butcher he's really struggled to get into the lineup. Mm -hmm. And so if you're looking at it from that standpoint alone, you're thinking, well, why not keep PK Subban and just expose Will Butcher? But here's where it gets complicated. Will Butcher is younger and he, his contract is like what? 3.7 cap is a 3.7 million cap hit. PK Subban is nine. Right. And it's that, it's that really interesting conversation if you're the Devils, like which one makes sense? Because if you're the Kraken and Will Butcher's available, you're thinking, okay, why not take him? Because we know what he can be in a situation where he gets ice time. He's still young and the cap hit is not going to be something that is crippling. Whereas if you look at PK Saban, and there's a lot of upside into getting someone like PK Saban. Um, the, the first being, well, 
he is P.K. Subban. There is a name. You are in a market where people are excited about this. He is someone they would instantly know. And that unto itself is a value. Mm-hmm. But then it's, it's the question of, is that worth $9 million annually, even though there's only one year left of that deal? And so when you look at the Devils, and they're going to have a lot of projected cap space ahead of next year. The number is higher than $32 million. Is this where if you're Ron Francis, you make a phone call to say, we would be willing to take P.K. Saban if you would be willing to eat some of the salary. Mm-hmm. And maybe if the Devils are willing to do that, then sure. But let's say they eat some of that salary and that contract gets reduced to, let's say, somewhere between five and six million. And you're paying six million for P.K. Saban. You still save money by going with Will Butcher. Right. And that's what makes it so interesting. Now, as far as the second, it wasn't really a trade, but it was what the Nashville Predators didn't do by getting rid of Matthias Ekholm. And it's David Poyle saying, we're not losing him an expansion. And then it's him saying, we've not talked to Mikel Granlin or his agent yet, but we would like to do a contract extension. So let's say that's something that gets done. All of a sudden, if you're the Predators, you're looking at your format and you're going to go protect eight skaters because just for the defenseman alone, it would be Roman Yossi, Ryan Ellis, Matthias Ekholm, and Dante Fabro. And what would be the point of protecting seven forwards, three defensemen, when those are your four defensemen and you don't want to leave any one of them exposed? Now, yes, it comes to a conversation about what you do with your forwards. Uh, I mean, yes, there's the Victor Arvidsons of the world that they would want to protect. They're, they're the Philip Forsbergs that they're definitely going to want to protect. Yeah. But as far as those last two spots, this is where it gets complicated because if you want to sign Granlin to an extension, why go through that, assuming you two agree to doing an extension, only to leave him exposed? And then that's where it becomes a little bit of game theory because what if you say, okay, here's the four forwards we're going to protect, but none of them are Matt Deshane and Ryan Johansson because you're banking on the fact the Kraken won't touch those contracts. Right. But then it's that optic discussion about, well, how do you tell two of your three most highly paid players? We're going to leave you exposed because we don't think anyone will touch you because of the cap hit, but also it is the idea about what their numbers have looked like. If, if those were players that were living up to the value of that contract from an offensive and defensive standpoint, then this is a different discussion. But because they haven't met the expectations and we saw what that looked like earlier this year when the Predators were struggling. I mean, they're eight, two and zero in their last 10. But at the same time, like when you look at that, it's a really interesting situation David Poyle is in. But if you're the Kraken, it helps you understand the landscape so much better. Yeah, I mean, I think when when a general manager can be so definitive about guys that they plan to protect and the, the options that are available to them, that certainly does help. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of sweet, you know, this is another situation where maybe there are some sweeteners that, that the, the predators can provide the Kraken to take one of those onerous contracts on. Now, I think it'd be a really tough sell for Ron Francis to take on either Duchesne or Johansson in, in any scenario without salary retention on the part of the predators, but man, that is these, these are the kind of discussions that I think make the expansion process still fun. Um, it, it's not, I'm sure it's not fun for the players because they don't, they, they would prefer certainty, 
but it's fun for us to kind of imagine these different scenarios. And the thing is, is that, you know, Ron Francis obviously isn't going to tell us any of this stuff. <laughs> He's not going to come right out and say any of that. So that's why it's, it's valuable to have someone like yourself on who's really made this a focus of coverage throughout the time. But, you know, I did, I did want to kind of keep it with, with the trade deadline as well, just because there were a couple of deal deals of note. We talked a little bit about the, the, the Taylor Hall contract situation or the, the trade situation there going to Boston and essentially controlling his destiny. I mean, it, it shows how devastating a no movement or no trade clause can be to a player's value. When you give them that power, it's what they've earned in the negotiation. It's why David Poyle has only given out like one ever <laughs> to Roman Yossi, um, you know, and, and so, you know, I think that was such a huge factor and Kevin Adams is obviously getting destroyed for this decision, you know, to only get a second round pick in Anders Bjork, who I think, you know, is a serviceable NHL player, but clearly, you know, not, not a former Hart trophy winner. Um, you know, so I just wonder some of your thoughts, just kind of seeing a deal like that get done. I don't think it's going to have much impact on the Kraken, but it does have, it was one of those trades that we were waiting to see drop. And, you know, I just wonder your thoughts on what does this mean for the future of the Sabres when really the rebuild package that they've compiled is, is not overly compelling at this point. It's interesting because when you look at teams that have been on a rebuild, let's take Buffalo versus that of Detroit. The Red Wings were not only able to move someone like Anthony Manta and get a, a ready-made player right now in, in Jakob Rana who can contribute, but they were able to get draft capital in that deal, and they were able to do that throughout the entire deadline. Whereas if you look at Buffalo, there wasn't really that same impact. And so when we have these conversations about rebuild, it's a very interesting one because some people say, is it easier for you to have a superstar or someone you think is a superstar and you build around them? Is it easier just to kind of have a blank slate and let the direction sort of take you where you think it needs to go? And so when you look at other teams in a rebuild, let's take Detroit, let's take the Los Angeles Kings, and let's pick a third team. Who would you throw out as another third team in a rebuild right now? Ottawa? Sure, yeah. Okay, Let, let's take those three teams and compare them to the Sabres. With the Kings, they have a situation where they are, <clears throat> excuse me, not only stockpiling prospects, but they've got veterans there, like Andre Kopitar and Drew Doughty, who are still good players, who can still serve in a mentorship role, that when the time comes, these younger players, the ones that are in their system, they're going to have someone there or really a couple players there who can kind of help them assimilate. Then you look at another team like the Ottawa Senators. The Ottawa Senators have a core where it's Kachuk, it's Shabbat, it's Stutzel. Um, it, it's, it's, it's all these players that are there. And you look at it and go, you can see the direction of where it's going. Uh, you look at the Detroit Red Wings and yes, Dylan Larkin is there. But then you look at what else is in the system with Joe Valeno, Moritz Sider, Philip Zadina, uh, Michael Rasmussen. You look at the picks that they've got coming as well. And between those three situations, you say, you can see a vision. Whereas if with the Sabres, no one knows what's going to happen with Jack Eichel. Right. And when you put it in this context, 
within five years of certain superstars being drafted, Nathan McKinnon, Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, just using those three, they were all within the playoffs within five years. Jack Eichel can't say that. And that's where you really have to start asking, what was the plan in Buffalo? Was it to build around him? Was it something else? But then it goes back to this other school of thought, which is they tried to build around him. Their moves just didn't work. So what do you do now? Is it, say, is it worth saying, let's try rebuild 2.0 with Jack Eichel? Or is it better to move on from him at some point? Because you're going to get a return for Jack Eichel. It's just if you're the Sabres, you have to think long and hard about what does the future look like, especially in an environment where, as we've seen from teams like Colorado or even the Vegas Golden Knights, which literally came out of thin air, you can win pretty quickly if you have a devout plan. And if you're the Sabres, what does that plan look like? Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, and the, the issue is, is now they're, you know, they've had multiple general managers, they've had multiple head coaches and the end result has been the same. And I think, you know, at this point, Kevin Adams is probably, you know, going to get the benefit of the doubt and get the opportunity to do this. But yeah, I think the, the, the Eichel situation continues to be one to monitor, not because, you know, I, I think obviously you're better with Jack Eichel than you are without him. But you also don't have a whole lot to to provide the package to just completely renovate the entire situation there. And so, if there are so all and all these these questions will continue to come up the next time we're talking about trades, which is going to be the NHL draft and the NHL expansion draft when those two come up. And there, these these are the same conversations that we're going to have because it's a lot harder to make some of these moves in season. Obviously, Jack Eichel is injured at this point, and and we don't know, you know, necessarily his status and. He has a humongous contract with term and it, there's so many interesting things to, to keep an eye on, but yeah, I mean, to see the Taylor hall deal and the, the return, I mean, I really have to give Kevin Adams some benefit of the doubt because of that no movement clause. And it's just, you can't make big contracts and, and big deals. But w- one of the things that I wanted to, to bring up with you too, is, you know, we, we, you mentioned the, the trade that, that Steve Eiserman made to send Anthony Mantha to Washington and got this humongous return for him and really laid it out. Hey, this is not he Anthony Mantha really wasn't in our rebuild timeline. He wasn't on that timeline. These these other players potentially can be, and those draft picks can be. Um what I you also covered Joe Sackick, and, and they have now they're on the back end. They've they've they're on the competitive portion of their rebuild process. The interesting thing is, Ryan, we're we're similar in age. How is it that two of the very best players from when we were growing up are now two of the very best general managers now that we, now that we are a grownups, if you will. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm still kind of immature, but you're, you're definitely the mature one of the group here. So, um, but you know, you've covered Joe Sackick. I think him and, 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 and Steve Eiserman have similar processes and, and similar, ideas of, of building draft capital and, and, and having a plan in place and, and, and having cores that you're prepared to build around. I mean, so what was it like kind of covering Sackick as he's kind of now matured into this? Hey, we're, we're going for it now. This is, we, we did that. We did the building process. Sure. One of the things going back to what you're saying about Joe Sackick and Steve Eiserman is this, when you look at their careers as players, the thing they have in common aside from winning was there was a consistency. When you look at how the front office operated 
with things like how you draft, with how you trade. And it's interesting because at the 2019 NHL draft in Vancouver, you and I were there when we were talking to Joe Sackett. And one of the questions I asked Joe at that time was, did you ever think you were going to be an NHL general manager? Like when you were a player or you were a kid and he was like, no, I just never really thought about it. But at the same time, like the thing that those two were able to do is they were able to get an education of this is what winning looks like. And you're able to see and understand certain things. And so with Joe, yes, he was into the front office. And then over time he worked his way up into being general manager. And the really interesting thing is when you look at the way the, the, the Sackick era started, it didn't go the way that they expected. Right. Whereas if now you look at it and people point at Joe Sackick and Chris McFarlane and Craig, and Craig Bennington is, Hey, this is the blueprint of what you should do. But the big takeaway from how they've done everything there is it's been one of patience. They've said, okay, don't be in a rush to do certain things. So we talk about trade. Let's go back to the Matt DeShane trade because it is the deal everyone discusses. Right. There were offers Joe Sackett had, but it was about trying to find the one that made the most sense. He held out for a three-team deal that he felt made the most sense. And when you look at it, a lot of the pieces from that deal are going to play such a big role on if the Avalanche can win a third Stanley Cup this year or not. But not only is it patience with that, but it's, it's learning how patience can be good and bad in other ways. So you look at what happened with Tyson Jost. Mm-hmm. Tyson Jost, after one year at North Dakota, he signs his NHL contract. And you look back at that, it's something they've never really talked about publicly. But questions have been asked, like, okay, if you could go back and redo Tyson Jost, would you have let him go two years, like what you've done with Kale McCarr, like what you've done with Alex Newhook? Um, or, or, or better yet, even though it's not going to be two years, let's look at someone like Drew Hellison at Boston College. The strides Hellison made from year one to year two have been beyond noticeable. That's why he was an all-hockey East pick. But at the same time, are you really in a rush for a guy like Drew Hellison to develop, much in the same way, like, were you in a rush for someone like Bowen Byram to develop? If this was the Avalanche five years ago, who's to say Bowen Byram wasn't immediately playing? Right. But they, they've understood, and, and this is something they've talked about publicly. Why would you feel the need to rush something when you look at what you have at the NHL level and you know that you can win? The question now is just simply going to be, how will that patience work out? And uh, Martin Couch, Shane Bowers are another example of that. And so that's really been it. It's, it's been patience, but it's also just been identifying what you want and that's been they want players that have intelligence they have speed uh they have technical ability there's a two-way presence to what they do it sounds really simple and it sounds straightforward because everybody wants that but in order to find it like the abs have met developed methods that's allowed them to do it and so really it's just been about not only patience but looking at the long term and so you look at the last three three off seasons there have been people who are like well why don't the avalanche do that why don't they do that why don't they go into free agency and make some big splash. It's because if you're Joe Sackick and Chris McFarland, this off season is why you don't do it because Gabriel Landeskog is a pending UFA and that's not going to come cheap. Philip Grubauer went from he's always injured to he might win the Vezina this year. And quietly (laughs) that is going to, and that is going to cost money. 
Yeah. And, 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 it, and, it, and it's weird because when you look at Grubauer's Vez in a case, like there's something to be said for the fact that for a team that has struggled through goal-attending injuries the last three to four seasons, this is what he looks like when he's been healthy and he has been the constant. And yes, you could argue, well, the abs are a team that are already ready-made to be good, so on and so forth. But at the same time, it is that whole idea of when you look at the injury problems, that's the strongest part of the case on top of the fact that he has just been really good. But you know he's going to get paid. And so if you're them, like, what do you look at? Do you look at the body of work? Do you look at this season and what it could be going forward? And how much do you take into account that Philip Grubauer has three Norse candidates in front of him in Kale McCarr, Devontae, and Samuel Gerard, which leads to the third part of this. Kale McCarr is a, is a pending restricted free agent. That is definitely not going to come cheap. No, it's not going to come cheap. How do- I mean, yeah, Thomas Shabbat went eight over eight. What do you think Kale McCarr is going to get? But then that's where it gets complicated because with the flat cap, there's a variety of ways that the Avalanche or McCarr's representation could explore. Yeah, it's, I mean, wow. What in uh, McCarr, another one of those examples of that, just let him, let him develop and let him a lot arrive ready. And here he is two years, you know, into his full NHL career. And it's like, Oh, he's, he's like one of the best in the world at this already. Like, I mean, it's, it's incredible to watch him. And you know what, Ryan, that actually brings me into my next point because you wrote one of the definitive profiles of, of Kale McCarr. I'd say the be definitive profile. I know because I had to follow that with a story of my own at ESPN and it wasn't nearly uh, as comprehensive as what you've, well, thank you. No, I appreciate really it. Thank, thank you. But yours was very, uh, you know, at the ground level. And, you know, the thing that we've both learned about Kale McCarr is the type of person that he is beyond the type, kind of player that he is. And obviously he was raised very well, great parents and uh, one of the most polite and, and thoughtful kids that you could think about. But he's also very confident, uh, confident without being cocky. And also it's just it's been amazing to watch him kind of develop as, as a player and see how quickly he's become one of the best in the world at, at his position. I mean, I, I have no qualms saying that he is one of the best defensemen in the NHL right now. Um, it's not controversial, <laughs> but having known him from when he was at UMass and congrats to UMass on the national championship, um, having known him then has anything surprised you about where he has taken things so far? Not really, uh, to be honest. It's, 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 it's one of those things where, like, talking to his parents for that story and other stories and then just getting to know Gary McCarr, they're all very quick to explain, like, none of this was planned. It was one of those things where he wanted to play. They felt, hey, let, let's support him. But they understood that he was going to be this undersized player and – it just somehow turned out to where over time he physically developed and he was just able to take the skills that he had to hone as an undersized player and put him into the frame of someone who is now 5'11", let's say 190 to 195. And even then you wonder if he's really 5'11", let's say six foot, to be honest. And all of a sudden it's kind of him and Adam Fox right now for the Norris conversation, which speaking of Adam Fox, that's another team in the Rangers where we have the rebuild discussion where right. they put they put out the letter and there was a lot of mixed feelings when they put out the letter. And you look at it now and it's like, hey, they could seriously contend for a playoff spot this year, depending upon how things work. 
And if not this year, then definitely next year. But the point is this, like with Kale McCarr, it's not been a surprise, especially when you consider like the avalanche and the fact that it's not, it's an organization and a team that like young talent, like some really good young talent can thrive early. I mean, we saw it with Gabriel Landeskog his first couple years in the league. Yep. We saw it with some other guy from Cole Harbor, Nova Scotia, who had some success pretty early on and is still having success. And we also have seen it with Miko Rantanen as well. We're now seeing it with Kale McCarr. And it looks like when he's been healthy, Bowen Byram is the same way. And Samuel Gerrard, even though he wasn't someone they drafted, but Samuel right. Gerrard as well. Yep. So it's, it's really not surprising, but at the same time, it was building toward that point because for the longest time, people kind of wondered, how is this going to work with Kale McCarr and Tyson Berry? Mm-hmm. And of course, they trade Tyson Berry, they get Nazem Kadri, they fill that need at second line center, and they give the controls to Kale McCarr. And so were there some bumpy moments for him at first? Totally. I mean, he, he was a rookie. What were people expecting? Whereas if you look at the way he's been now when he's been healthy, there's a reason him and Adam Fox are talked about so much in this Norris discussion. Yeah, I mean, man, he, he Makar, it's it's been amazing. Adam Fox is is really as a guy that I've covered for a long time has surprised me with how good he's been as an NHL player. I think he's a I've said this about Quinn Hughes, I've said this about Makar, I've said this about Adam Fox. They're somehow better NHL players than they were college players. And they were dominant college hockey players, but they were they have they have improved their games and raised the level of their games and and certainly Fox and and Makar at this point are in you know, in a totally different tier than I could have anticipated when they were coming out of, of college hockey. So it's great to see those two guys. All right. I do want to talk about your current team because uh, they don't actually exist yet. (laughs) And you are covering a team that has no players. Uh, They do have a general manager. They don't, they don't have coaches. They haven't made their final payment to the league yet. So officially they can't be involved in trades or signing free agents and things of that nature. But you've been in Seattle since basically the beginning of the season since the summer uh, after covering the abs for two years. And, you know, what is it like to, you know, kind of cover this team as it's in its infancy and not really in existence technically yet? It's one of those things where you kind of understand that it's, it's a concept still and that Mm -hmm. the team will materialize. And that for as far away as July 21st seems, it's really not that far away. And so when you're covering a team like this, it's extremely different than let's say you're covering a team that's been in existence. Because a team in existence, it's yes, there's players, but there's other things you can look at. Like, are there trends? Are there things that they've done in the past? Like, where's the direction of this franchise? Whereas if with the Kraken, it's a very abstract sort of team to cover and that there's a lot of different directions you can go. And so when you're looking at it, for example, if you're talking about like, what is a serious story you can do? Things about the deadline are exactly that because people might go, how does a team that doesn't exist, how are they impacting the deadline? Well, because essentially for the lack of better phrasing, the Kraken are a hidden fee, except for they're not hidden. Like usually in right. the fine print, it says, oh, by the way, and you're like, where did this come from? Except for like, no, everyone knows the fine print because it's been out there for quite a long time. And so you're looking at kind of like, what are these moves that are going to impact teams? Like, what are these moves that are going to impact the crack and so on and so forth? But then when you take a step back and you start looking at things that maybe aren't as serious, 
take what's going on with mascots. The Kraken <laughs> don't have a mascot. And will they have a mascot? And if you're going to do that, like, how are you going to do this in this age of gritty where in hockey, especially like there's this expectation now that hockey mascots are going to work out and maybe not be exactly like gritty, but there's going to be like this affinity a city has. And so that's just the thing. It's like, it's being able to look at those things, but then it's able to take a step back and look at what someone like Ron Francis did in his time in, in, in Carolina. And that's something you and I discussed so, so much in the time that, that story was being reported. It was one of those, okay, what are going to be these things that are going to make people interested to learn about Ron Francis? So the first is when you look at the money that they saved in Carolina, they were always more than 10 million under the cap. And it's one of those, if they were able to spend to the cap, how much differently would that look for a team that every year of his tenure lost at least 24 games by one goal? Then it's the question of like, okay, so how did they draft? 27 of the 33 players drafted under Ron Francis are either with the Carolina Hurricanes or in another NHL organization. When that stat was given to Robert Crone, who's the director of scouting for the Kraken, who was in Carolina, he was just like, this has just made my day. <laughs> like, 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 I did not know this. This is amazing. We should talk more. Like... <laughs> This is, the, this is amazing because it's like, it's one of those things where so much is often said about, you want to know something about a franchise's future, look at how they've drafted in the past. And when you look at the Hurricanes, there is a reason they've had the success they've had is because they have been homegrown. So between what Francis and then Don Waddell has done, like it, it, it plays your role in being able to do that. But then, you know, the third thing, like you're able to find out about someone like Ron Francis is like, it's more than just the moves. It's more than just the trades. It's more than just how he handled money, but it's gaining an idea of the overall philosophy for a general manager. And the reality is this, how often do those opportunities present themselves? Because like when you look at Pittsburgh, it was one GM steps down. There's this couple day window of a, of a gap where it's just like, who's it going to be? And then you bring in a new GM and it's like, yes, even though that's a GM that had been in other places, like, do you really get a chance to kind of sit down and pour over every decision that this person has made and then get to ask them about it? Whereas if a situation like this with Ron Francis, it presented itself. And from it, you're able to pick up on other stories where you're like, okay, this is good to file away for later. So that's just it. It's just like, you're, you're taking the abstract, but you're taking the factual and the concrete as well. And you're able to have a better understanding of not only how does this organization operate philosophically with things like analytics with things like their draft strategy their trade approaches but also like how is this going to work in a city where things like growth and affordability are a big deal but the kraken have said they want to be the team for everyone in a city where equity is a massive conversation so it's mm. just it's all of the above yeah, it's such a, this is why I think that you were such a great choice to cover this team, not only because you, you had familiarity with the market, but the way that you conceive ideas, and I think this is part of the benefit of something we'll talk about a little bit later is the, 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 the career that you've had and the different places that you've been, is these concepts for stories kind of come up and I'm like, how did you even come up with that? You know, or, or there are things that you've learned in reporting that you just file away and you, you're able to find find ways to, to, 
to tell a really great story. And I mean, I, you know, I think that Kale McCarr story was a great one. I think he had like, you know, childhood drawings and things of that nature in, in that piece. Yes, so, the essay. Yeah. 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 So, you know, yeah, the essay, that's right. And uh, it, you know, they're just all these little bits of, of, of color that you can add to a story from, from those, those, those little tiny things that uh, somebody tells you. And I, I, I love that about kind of the way that you operate. And I was going to bring up that story about Ron Francis, because I think that one of the things you know, his legacy in Carolina is on display right now. I mean, they're one of the best teams in the NHL. Many players, his fingerprints are all over in terms of players that he's either drafted or traded for. Um, and, you know, it's kind of an unceremonious end to his time there, but he is really in, in, in the same mold of an Iserman and a Sackick, again, one of the, a Hall of Fame player who just has a knack for team building. And so, you you've had the great pleasure now you know to have had a couple of these guys in in, in getting Sackick and getting Ron Francis I mean are there any similarities that you can draw between the two that that you've experienced so far in your in your conversations with Francis definitely the first is when you talk to people who worked with them or worked around them they all say the same things which is just these are very easy people to work for that they let you do your job and they let you do it to the point of like, you feel this sense of ownership. You understand at the end of the day that they're the ones making the final decision, but you know, you're able to present your case, whether it be about a prospect or a player or about something else. And then the other thing too, is just, it's kind of been how welcoming they've been to their staff. So like there is a story I once heard about Joe Sackick where he was walking and he said hello to an intern and the person he was walking with said, that's not their name. This is their actual name. And he turned around and said, I am so sorry. I thought this was your name. I, I'm going to be better. And like, it's the kind of thing that like resonates with people because the thought is like, if you're an NHL general manager, just that title alone sort of gives you like this power just to, to be and do whatever you want. But for someone like Joe in that position to, to say this to an intern, if you're an intern, like, how does that make you feel? Like, wow, like the person who's responsible for everything is actually willing to get to know my name and willing to view me as, as someone who's more than just an intern. Mm -hmm. And with Ron Francis, you know, there have been conversations you have with people within the Kraken who their hockey experience, it varies. There are some who've been around the game their whole life. There have been some who are new to it. And then there are some who are somewhere in the middle. And every time you, you have these conversations, you hear some story about like, this is how Ron Francis put me at ease. So Danny Chu, who is one uh, of the people who works in the Kraken's analytics department was explaining how, when they were still allowed to go to games, he and Francis were sitting down and, you know, they were going over things. And, you know, with Danny, you know, his background is in basketball and he's someone who as, as a big NBA fan and as someone who coaches basketball as well, like, the, the concept of pace and, 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 and space in the NBA is a very big thing. And when Ron Francis was explaining, explaining to him, like, this is how important it is to find space on the ice. He was like, this suddenly became relatable. And there was never any of this. How do you not know this? Or like, why are you saying this? Cause I'm, you know, I'm me. It was very much this here is a man who is really patient. And so when you hear people say those things, like it's easy to see the similarities and then just getting a chance to talk to them and, and know both of them. I mean, there's definitely similarities b between the two. So uh, it, it's, it's been really sort of an interesting exercise to see just kind of 
what they're like, but also like, how is this going to work in Seattle? And will it be similar to Colorado? Will it be similar to Carolina? Will it be somewhere in between or will it be something completely different? Yeah. Some of the stuff that you bring up, I mean, it just goes to show why those guys are such respected leaders and were as players and now in a management role. And, you know, they, it, it's, it always fascinates me though, the things that you can learn from experience, the things that you can learn from being a player, obviously Ron Francis was part of one of the all-time trades in, in, in NHL history. And, and Joe Sackick stayed with the same organization his whole career and, and has been there his whole professional career as, as, as now an executive. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by both of those individuals. And I think it's such a cool thing that you've gotten a chance to work with both of them on a, you know, on a media basis and, and, and get to learn from them as well. And, and gosh, I mean, what an, what an education into your first NHL foray to have two incredible general managers that are, you know, that, that are certainly um, kind of running a clinic right now on the NHL. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated to see what Ron Francis does. I think the Kraken have one of the most unique um, front offices of, of anywhere. I think that, you know, certainly having a guy like Jason Bottrell, who, you know, things didn't work out in Buffalo, but I mean, the guy's got Stanley cups from Pittsburgh and has been a cap genius for, for many years. Um, you know, things like that. And you obviously have Alexander Mandricki, Ricky Olchek, uh, you know, all these different people that, that are, are part of this process. And, and one of the things that you have covered is the Kraken have made a concerted effort to have a diverse front office, a diverse client, you know, a diverse staff as well. And that's very much a Seattle, like Seattle is a, is a place of, of, of great diversity. And, and, and obviously there's, there's value in that, but what have you learned kind of in the process of reporting that out about why the Kraken have, have made such a, made this effort and, and do you think they're succeeding in it at this point? Well, you look around the city and it's a very interesting conversation that continues to go on because there's some people who may say, you look at Seattle, it's a very diverse place. There are some people who are people of color who say Seattle could still be a lot better when it comes to diversity, but it's a conversation that is happening just because, I mean, when you look at this city and the way it's been built, it's part of just the fabric of, of what goes on here. And so if you're the Kraken, it starts honestly with something Todd Lewicki, who's the president and CEO said, and that when he was the executive director and president of the first T program, and he was the very first person in that position, he said that diversity was something that he always knew was important, but to be in that role really gave him a perspective of how important it really and truly was. And so when you have someone like that who learns that concept early in their executive career, and they're able to take that throughout these different experiences, whether it be in the NHL, whether it be in the NFL, which are two very differing leagues when it comes to how that spectrum looks, and you're able to get to a place like this where you're able to build from the ground up, you understand there's not this built-in thought process of, well, we already have people in these positions and it might be a little bit harder. You can now sit there and say, no, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to look. And so when you think about it like that, and you think about the fact that Seattle is a city where startups have done really, really well. I mean, one of them being some former book dealer named Amazon. And when you look at the Amazon campus, like 
which right now seems like 30% of downtown Seattle pre-pandemic was the Amazon campus. You are seeing women, you are seeing people of color. Like you are having these conversations about pronouns. Like it is an extremely real thing. And when you look at the Kraken, it's, it's no different. And so when you look at like the moves they've made, whether it be with Alexandra Mandricki, Namita Nandakumar, Danny Chu, let's talk about analytics as a whole. Analytics has been a very interesting discussion for a lot of reasons, because there are people who feel like it's a tool. There are some people who feel like it's the entire toolbox. There are people who feel like it should be nowhere even in a hardware store. But within that conversation, one of the points that often doesn't get discussed enough is what are the role that women have in analytics? What are the role that people of color have in analytics? And in Seattle, you have a woman running this whole thing. In Seattle, 40% of their staff are people of color. And they exist in a space where you just don't see a lot of either of those categories be really well represented. And so it's an example of how like the diversity exists. It's one of those things where you might have to go look for it, but it really does exist. And so if you're the Kraken, by having that diversity, it allows you to think about things differently. So let's take someone like Namita Nandakumar, who is a perfect example of someone who was outside of hockey, who for what she does, she could give them a serious advantage. She was working with the Philadelphia Eagles, and part of her job was assessing the draft. The NFL draft, and this might sound kind of a bizarre concept to hockey fans, imagine the NFL draft being a seven-round process where you're trying to find talent across every conference and every league in college football from your star-studded leagues like the SEC and the ACC down to something like the, 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 the Sun Belt, you know, you're looking for players wherever. If only the NHL had that similar overlap. <laughs> and so what you're able to do if you're the Kraken is you're able to take someone who did this at the NFL level and they can apply it to the NHL. And so for them, yes, it, it's, it's a bit broadened because there's a big difference between, hey, we're going to go scout a cornerback from McNeese State University versus, hey, we're looking at this goalie who plays in the SHL. Again, big difference just because of the geography. But the point is this, you have someone who has that experience. And when you look at how Francis teams have drafted in the past, now that you have someone who this is their job, it's just one more tool to that. And so when you think about just the willingness to sort of do things different, that's one example of how like they could potentially have an advantage over other teams. Right. I mean, and it's, these people are so talented. I mean, Namita, for sure. I've followed her work for a long time. Obviously, Alex Mandricki, she's been all over and one of the, the biggest names in, in hockey analytics for, for some time. And, you know, they, they, from even down to their outreach for community outreach and, and youth hockey outreach, I mean, they've, they've, they've put so many people in positions that are just so talented at what they do. And that's really what it comes down to. You have to have good people. And they, you know, the fact that it's, they've also built a diverse off office allows them to have different perspectives as well, coming in to, to look at every angle of that organization. So I'm, I think it's a great thing to do. And I, I think the point that you made about that, they basically had the opportunity to build this from the ground up. There was nothing built in that they had to, you know, work around. Um, that was, that, that's pretty interesting and, and it's fascinating. Now, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about with you, because we've known each other for a long time 
And from the very first time that we talked, it was very apparent to me that you were uh, somebody with great aspirations. And one of those aspirations was to be a National Hockey League beat writer. And at the time you were saying that, you were working uh, in Fargo, North Dakota, covering the Fargo Force. You had the most amazing blog in the history of the USHL called Slightly Chilled, which was- Don't know about all that. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Um, you know, and I had uh, the United States of Hockey. And I remember, you know, we connected and you've always had this curiosity and also a comprehensiveness to your reporting where you're going to uncover all these, these stones. And it didn't matter, you know, the USHL was certainly not the NHL. It probably felt pretty far from the NHL at that point, but you covered it as professionally as you could have at that, at that time as a reporter. And you've climbed a lot of different rungs on the ladder over the, you know, the decade plus that I've known you, um, which is why I think that it's really important for, for people to hear it is, it is difficult to make it to where you are right now. And you, you had to go through a lot of struggles and a lot of different jobs, but you made it because you always were going to make it because from that very beginning, when I saw you in Fargo, it's clear you had the mentality of an NHL beat writer then. And, and I, I think it's so important for, for students to know if, you, if you're a journalism student noticing this, it's so important to be where you are, be present in that and cover and do the work because that's what's going to resonate. And it took a long time to get there, Ryan, but here you are and now covering the, the Kraken. You're covering, you're, you're at, you know, the, pub, the hockey publication of record, I'd say, you know, the way that the athletic has, has become. So, I mean, as you reflect on the years, you know, just I, if you could rattle off some of the towns that you lived in and worked into, and just the one thing that I'd like to know from you is over that entire process, what is the lesson that you took from the experiences that you had as you reflect on your career at this point? Maybe the biggest lesson, maybe the biggest lesson, honestly, would just be it's okay to not have faith mm. because sometimes you just don't know. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that it was evident because there are times when you are not covering the NHL or you're not really covering anything you're really excited about covering. Is it evident to people? Because what I, I guess getting like two inside baseball on journalism, <laughs> um, it's a really complicated field in the sense of where you go to school, where you intern does play a big role in what you're going to be able to do in those early stages of your career. And so before I went to the South Florida Sun Sentinel, I had worked in Richmond, Indiana, Beaumont, Texas, Fargo, North Dakota, and Lansing, Michigan. And while I've been able to say I covered Indiana high school basketball, Texas high school football, and Minnesota high school hockey, there were some people who just felt like you really haven't done anything. You've just kind of been a middling high school reporter with a little bit of hockey experience. And so to go to South Florida, you know, the, the person who hired me, Greg Lee, is one of my best friends. And, you know, at first, like, he was my boss, but like, he's become one of my best friends. And you know, you hear stories about 
who is this person Greg just hired from Lansing? You've never heard of them. They went to Maine. Like that's not Missouri. That's not Florida. That's not Indiana. And you really just start to learn honestly how, while it's important, I think, to have an understanding that confidence is never a bad thing, you have to understand that there are going to be people who aren't going to believe in you no matter what you do. And when, when you understand that, it, it, allows it, it allows you to have a better comprehension of what you need to do in order to put yourself in the best situation to be successful. And so um, I think about covering the Florida State Seminoles and how like that was such a different experience because you're going from covering things that people sort of care about to something people care about with a, with a high amount of passion. And you start wondering at that point, are you ready for a pro B, but you don't know if it's going to be hockey. You don't know if it's still going to be in the college athletics landscape. And so going to, to Tacoma, and I lived in Seattle, uh, but I covered the Washington Huskies for the Tacoma News Tribune. And I guess like, I really have to think about what I want to say, not that it's anything bad, but I just want to make sure like, I don't have the wrong wording of this. I was fine never covering the NHL because I loved covering the Washington Huskies. For me, it was, it was everything I wanted, but it was everything I didn't know I needed because mm. I was in a major market and not saying that South Florida wasn't, but there's a big difference between covering high school players versus covering a college program. And you are in a city where people genuinely give a damn about what you're covering. Right. You know, at first, when you take the job, there are always going to be that crowd of people who go, who is this person? And do they know anything? And then to come to the Huskies beat, they were like, oh, my God, we got someone from the ACC. <laughs> like, this yeah. is going to be amazing. And like it was, a, it was a feeling I never really like experienced in the sense of how welcoming people were. And then just to cover the way football was and basketball, like football won 10 games, basketball won 20. It was the first 2010 season UW had had in like 30 years. And so to just see how it was all going and to have this strong feel for how they do recruiting, how they develop, how they win, and you take all these other things that you picked up from FSU. Like, for example, Seattle is a city where there is a ton of wealth. And you're sitting there going, so why aren't you taking the Amazon, the Nordstrom, the, the warehousing, Priceline, Zulily money, and building it into this war chest at Washington to where they can just go do the sort of damage you see out of Texas, at an Alabama, and the point that got made was because they don't want those kind of problems. Mm. And that's when you take a step back and you realize like, just because you have the means doesn't mean you need to use them. And if you do have those means, maybe you use them elsewhere. And it was just a very different way of looking at college athletics. And so like Kristen, my wife and I, we talked and we said, we're fine staying in Seattle and the rest of our lives and covering the Huskies. Um, and then in the span of two to three weeks, the athletic was one of three places that reached out about covering the NHL. And now all of a sudden you're like, <laughs> how many times have you been close to this before only to be turned down? And now all of a sudden you, you're hearing this and you're going, maybe this is the, the actual thing, the real thing. And then when you start having job interviews and you start being flown to places and there's an actual 
like, I don't want to say courtship because it's not that serious, but like, there are people who are like, can trying to convince you, no, you need to be here. No, you need to be there. Like that is when it hits you. And that is why leaving Seattle is the hardest thing we have ever done as, as, as a family. Um, it was, and, and, you know, and that was what I think was just so interesting about covering the avalanche was like, the Avalanche were and are a really good team. And it is really, really fascinating. But the reality is it's like, that is a team that for as good as they are, like even in Denver, it's a city where the Broncos are, are, are taking priority. And a place like Seattle, it's different in that everybody can share the pie. It's still a Seahawks town. But like when people are good, like you've seen firsthand what that's like. And so it was just kind of different. And so when the opportunity for Seattle was presented in the sense of, do you want to apply for this? As much as we missed it, initially the answer was no. Like we're like, we want to be here in Denver. Like we like Denver. Um, Denver's nice. It's a hell of a lot easier to get around Denver. Um, <laughs> like Denver also has mountains. Like why the hell would we want to leave? But then when you start thinking about the opportunities that exist to cover an expansion team and be at the ground floor, and not only that, but be at the ground floor of something in a city where, again, Denver is passionate, but it's just, it seems like when you look at how things are covered, it became a little bit of a joke. Like when Philip Grubauer was playing well, it's like, hey, will Philip Grubauer be the Broncos' new starting quarterback? Find out tonight at 11. And people were like, no, this is so spot on. Whereas if in Seattle, all these things can exist separately. No one's sitting there going, Hey, Kyle Lewis has a killer arm. Why not have him replace Russell Wilson? No one is going to <laughs> say that because again, things can exist in their own spaces. And so, yeah, just to be back, it's, it's interesting. And I hope all this makes sense or answers the question, but it's just, I think be prepared for anything, but also like it's okay to not have faith. If anything, it's good to not have faith because that way you don't become arrogant because it goes back to something Wooden said, which is town is God given, fame is man given, conceit is self given. So be careful. Yeah. Man, I think that's such great advice. And to have to have been able to watch your career go and knowing that knowing what you wanted versus what was happening at the time, we've had so many of these conversations personally, where and I think that idea of not having faith is a is a is a bit of a you know, it sounds negative, but at the same time, it's like it's okay to be where you're at. It's okay to be where you're at and that you know, things will end up working out. And I, I feel like, you know, I've had some lucky breaks in my career. You, you know, it, it takes that from time to time, but those, that luck has to meet talent at some point. And that's one of the things I think you've always, always delivered. And, and I should say, you know, when you went and covered the, the Huskies, that's where I think, you know, covering it for a major newspaper, having the opportunity to tell long form stories and, and, and report things out and, and just, you know, you wrote so many good things. I think you were doing your best work at that time. And so not only were you, you know, ready, you, you were ready for that next step, even though you didn't necessarily need to take it. You could have, you could have stayed there. Well, because I think some of it goes back to just how you feel about your situation and, you know, covering FSU, like, don't get me wrong. Like it was an interesting experience, but like, it wasn't what we wanted just because like, we had missed living in a, in a major city, whereas if living in Tallahassee, you know, everything is a good, sometimes three to four, maybe five hours away, depending on what direction you're heading. <laughs> yeah. So to be in Seattle, I mean, that's a very big thing. And I think the thing that young journalists and 
just really anyone in general like should learn is I think early on you kind of go it doesn't matter where I live as long as I have a job and it's a good mentality but there reaches a point especially I think as you're married or you're in a very serious relationship you need to be in a place where everyone is going to be happy and you know for us with Seattle it, it, it checked that box and so when you have that and you know people genuinely care about what you're doing and they and you're doing it in a major market like that makes it so much easier but it's also like it's the people you work with. And so like my boss in Tacoma, Darren Bean, I love him to death. Like he was always supportive of everything I wanted to do. And, you know, they were really cool about saying, Hey, take these chances, do the things that you want to do. And like, it worked out so well to where like, they were like the, the, the traffic and the numbers you pull in in basketball. They're like a football month. Like huh. we've never seen this before. We're so excited about the future. And then the athletic was like, so are we. So goodbye. <laughs> and uh, and like it's the same thing here at the athletic. Like, look, I mean, like Craig Custance, James Myrtle, Sarah Goldstein. I mean, they're my bosses, and they've been so much more than that. And then it's people like Marcus Thompson, who like Marcus is someone that like he's like one of my heroes on so many levels, but he's also one of my really, 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 really close friends. And like that people like that identify early on, like, Hey, we think you are something and you can be more than what you are. It's great. But then I like, I look at people like Corey and like, well, Corey Promet, I guess I shouldn't. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they're like, like, they're like, who the hell is Corey? And it's like, they're like Corey Prom. And like, I mean, he's someone that you, know, you and I've known for, for a long time. And it's just like, I think to, to see someone like him that you can have these conversations with who they understand, like what it takes to really start from nothing to get to this point and how to keep getting better. Like it's so monumental. And so just when you think about this point in your career, you're just, you're grateful because you realize it wasn't always like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, the struggle, the struggle is, is part of the process, I think for a lot of people, but you know, as, as your friend and as somebody that's followed your career, none of this surprised me, you know, none of this surprised me, just like Gail McCarr didn't surprise you. I think it took a little longer than Kale did <laughs> to get to this level. No, but... that's true. I mean, maybe if Gary McCarr had, had been around to oversee my development, maybe yeah. I'd, I'd have been better off. Yeah, I'm sure well, he's going to what... listen to this and text me and be like, oh, Clarky, that's so funny. Here's a dad joke. And it's like, thanks, Gary. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. We could all use a little, a little more Gary. But yeah, you know, I think, you know, I just wanted to kind of share some of that process with people because, you know, you see the end product, everybody sees the end product. And, and, you know, it's not just that you've become uh, an NHL beat writer. It's that when you got there, you, you became an exceptional beat writer. And I say that not just as a friend, but as a, as a, as a purveyor of journalism uh, that, you know, you are one of those people that I think has made the game better with your presence here, because you tell some really important stories. You tell them from a great perspective and, you know, I think about things like, you know, t telling Jacob Slavin's adoption story and telling all these different stories about, um, you know, just the, the, the personalities of these people, the struggles that they've gone through, um, the, the different family stories that you've told. And it's not just all about hockey, you, you know, and I think that it takes somebody to understand the human condition to tell those stories as well as you tell them. And so I think that all the experiences that you've built up over your life and all the different places you've been have really uh, contributed to that. So, um, you know, you know, I love you, you know, that I think you're one of the best anyway, but I'm really, really thankful that you came on here because this was a really fun conversation. I took up more of your time than I planned to, but this is how all of our conversations go. 
No, I mean, it is because I mean, like, I feel like we're having a meeting in a little bit, so to make sure we're still good on time. But, you know, the thing I was going to add before we run is sure. And I, and I never say this out loud because I'm always afraid, like, oh, God, it's going to sound terrible. But I think one of the biggest things that really helped my development was honestly covering FSU because that is a thing yeah. they said, if you suck, you're going to hear about it. Like, <laughs> I'll never forget being on radio and I got a stat about Roberto Aguayo wrong. And there were fans who were just like, how can we trust this idiot? to cover our team when he doesn't know the the correct stats. And like, you're just like, that's intense, but you know what? They're also right. And so, you know, look, covering Florida state is not for everybody. Like it's it just, it isn't because like those fans, they take it super, super, super seriously. But as a journalist, like as much as you say, Oh, I want to be in a place where people care, like they care. And sometimes you might just be like, okay, can we, can we take a break for a little bit? But, <laughs> yeah. But like you realize like going through and, and covering something like FSU, like it certainly helps. And so when when you look at like where you're at and like why you take it so seriously, that's why. Because like if people are, are paying to read you and people are trusting you, like if you can't give your effort, then just go do something else and let someone who actually wants to be there be there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's well said. And I, I think that 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 might have been some of the most instructive stuff going into that NHL beat where where access and other things can be more difficult at times. And so the same with college athletics. And I think you always did more with less when you had to. I think that was one of the great values of that experience. But if if you if you are a fan of the game, if you are a, a new fan of the Seattle crack, and if you're a fan of the Colorado Avalanche, if you just enjoy hockey, you need to be following Ryan S. Clark. It's Ryan at Ryan underscore S underscore Clark. There's no underscoring him. He is, he is the best. So. Ah, uh, clever. Ah, yeah. See, see, I'm getting a hang of this I, podcast. I, thing. I should be like watching. You're like, that's funny, Murray. Hilarious, Murray. <laughs> now we've fully gone off the rails. So anyway, this is how most of our phone conversations end as well. We'll do the long goodbye, but, but Ryan, I just cannot thank you enough for being on here. I hope that everybody reads your work at the athletic because it is exceptional. Uh, I hope they follow you on Twitter for, for every, uh, some, some, some of the more, <laughs> the tweets that always make me smile as well when it comes to games, trades or anything yeah, I else. I wonder which one you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I think people will see it when I promo this, but, uh, but I, I just really cannot thank you enough for coming on talkie hockey since this is one of the interview, one of the most coveted interviews that I've had since I started the podcast, because I, I just wanted to share your wisdom with the world. So, uh, so Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today and all the best with uh, the rest of your coverage. And we'll certainly be looking forward to the NHL expansion draft and the beginning of the Seattle Kraken. So Ryan, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Once again, my thanks to Ryan S. Clark for joining Talking Hockey Sense, such a, a great guy and, and one of the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life. And really an inspiration to me over the course of my career. He's really grinded it out, to, as you mentioned, you know, going to places such as Beaumont, Texas, and 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 Indiana, and you know, being in South Florida. I mean, he really has has gone through so much uh, to get to this point and covered a lot of beats that you know maybe didn't get a lot of attention. But it just goes to show you that it's so important to put in the work, and that's something that Ryan has always done throughout his career. And now he's earned the success that he's had at the Athletic and has really gained a lot of popularity. His following is is continuing to grow, and I think if you're a Seattle Kraken fan, um, he's going to be one of those guys you absolutely have to read because he is going to give you some really great stories in the next uh, however long he's doing the beat because he's he's a really exceptional writer. 
All right, well, we're going to move on from that and, and did want to talk about a couple of things related to the draft. As I was recording with Ryan, the news broke that the Canadian Hockey League has announced that the 2021 Memorial Cup is officially canceled. Unfortunately, not able to have the the general championship for the three primary Canadian Hockey Leagues, the QMJHL, OHL, and WHL. So for the second straight season, we will not have a Memorial Cup, which is obviously one of those events that that doesn't always necessarily take precedence over everything else in terms of the draft, but it's it, it, it can certainly enhance a player's value. And you can look at the, the, the different performances over the years that really help guys elevate and, and uh, to not have that experience for you know a couple generations of junior hockey is really unfortunate. And uh, there's really not much we can do about it. The cases have been surging in Canada. The the vaccine pace has not been at the same level as what we've seen in the U.S. So it, it's one of those things where it it's just unfortunate. However, we do have a very important draft event. I mentioned it last week. It only grows in import now uh, because we still don't know when the Ontario Hockey League will start. But the World Under-18 Championship will begin at the end of April, and it will really be one of those first opportunities for a lot of the players from the Ontario Hockey League to get an opportunity to play against their peers, because uh, many of them, if they were top players, tried to go to Europe and and played either professionally. Some of them did play junior hockey. Um, but yeah, so, so that's going to be a really an important event, even more so now that we know for sure there will be no Memorial Cup and still no clear date for a start of the Ontario Hockey League, and you certainly wonder how that impacts people going forward, certainly the players, the de- development opportunities that are available to them, the players in the Ontario, the other Ontario-based leagues that have not started yet, including the youth hockey leagues. Um, there's, you know, this this affects a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Obviously, the, the worst way is the way that COVID has a- affected people's health, but you certainly feel for the players that are missing out on opportunities uh, to to further their careers, and it's going to take years for us to fully understand what this season, uh, this lost season, and the end of last season meant for so many players in terms of their development and mental health and everything else. So uh, my heart goes out to anybody that that continues to struggle with this and and the decisions that that are unfortunately necessary. It's you know there's not much you can argue at this point when cases continue to surge and, and we're trying to get out of this as fast as we can and um, patience is running thin but it's it's all we have at this point so uh, something to think about as we go forward we talked at the beginning of the show about the incredible success of the university of massachusetts hockey team and and winning the national championship but it was also a very sad weekend for college hockey as we learned on friday that University of Maine men's hockey coach Red Gendron passed away at 63 quite suddenly. Uh, it was shocking news to hear. It was obviously very sad news to hear, but uh, it, it's been heartwarming to see all the outpouring of support for for Red because he was such a larger-than-life individual, and his fingerprints are all over college hockey. He was part of the staff of, of the University of Maine team in 1993 when they won the national championship, and that's pretty much the greatest college hockey team of all time. His name is on the Stanley Cup twice as a member of the New Jersey Devils staff where, you know, as, as an assistant coach, and he also helped work in their minor league system for many years and helped develop champions for the New Jersey Devils. On top of that, he was an assistant coach at the University of Massachusetts, so had, you know, helped lay the foundation for what's become possible there at UMass, and Greg Carvel was sure to make make sure to, to give him some credit for that uh, as, as a member of two Cahoon staff years back. He was also part of the Yale National Championship team in 2013 as an assistant coach and you know, was able to return to Maine as head coach and, and care deeply about the program, his players. 
And, you know, it's an unfortunate way to, to have to end the show, but I, I think we have to pay our respects to such a great individual and a great man and Red Gendron, who is beloved by so many and will be so sorely missed. So, unfortunately, don't like to end the show on a sad note, but do want to say a special thank you to Red Gendron for all he gave to the game. That's going to do it for this week on Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters. We'll see you next time.